I see it as the sales team's responsibility to knit together the relationships and the, un, the common understanding between buyers and sellers, right? The, the customers and, and the vendors. And the executives have day jobs, but the head of HR, the CFO, everybody should be customer facing because they all have value to deliver to the customers. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger for optimizing business performance. Scaling up organizations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hello, today I'm talking to Jamal Reimer. And Jamal has had a 20-year career in sales. He is a self-confessed individual contributor. He has decided that he loves selling and he stayed in it. He currently works for Oracle as an enterprise SaaS rep, but that's not what we're talking to him about today. Today, we're talking about what he does in his spare time, which is he coaches the CEOs of late stage startups and he coaches individual sellers and he's helping them change their mindset and put in place a structure in their organizations, which allows those businesses to land maybe their first mega deal, the deals that change the trajectory of the business's growth. And so I wanted to get him on and pick his brains and see what secrets we could uncover that would be applicable to CEOs in that I talk to every day who really started their business and are doing sales, but it's how to get away from the run rate and how to make, how to do deals that, that will transform, transform your business's growth. I had a fantastic conversation with him today, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. Hey, Dom. Uh, I'm Jamal Reimer, and I am a dyed-in-the-wool sales rep, and I've been selling enterprise software for almost 20 years. I'm currently with Oracle, and uh, if, if I ever had a claim to fame, it would be that I've done three $50 million deals over my career, so just in the past six, seven years, I've done about 160 million in SaaS revenue. That is an incredible, incredible amount of money to do in such a short period of time. Yeah, it, it keeps you running. <laughs> How big is the team that you're in? Four and five, depending on what you're with one manager. And we're across, we're across all of Europe. And so in your career, you've, you've, you've just been a seller, sole contributor throughout your career. That's right. There is an emerging term. I don't know how long it's been around, but it's <clears throat> kind of new to me. I'm an intentional individual contributor. You know, like I said, I've been selling for almost 20 years and I've, I've made the choice that I, I love what I do. I love being in the field, in the foxhole, doing the, the work with the customer through hard times and great times. And uh, it's never really appealed to me to go into management and start taking on, you know, half selling and half admin roles. That's just not something that's been interesting to me. But 
I certainly work with executives on both sides of the table every day. And it's so interesting, isn't it? In, the, in salespeople's early career, often they feel that the only way to get promoted or get, get ahead in an organization is to become a manager. So in your early career, where were you that staying a sole contributor made, made sense? In the early years, I wasn't sure. You know, I was green. <clears throat> I was just trying to figure out the game. And uh, it took me a while to figure out the game. But once I was in it long enough, then I simply observed, right? You know, I, I used to think that the secrets of the world were exactly that secrets, especially the business world. But when you, when you just observe long enough, you start to really just see the reality regardless of the hype or whatever you, you hear from others. And I just started to see that in the companies where I worked, it was a really tough job. I think, I think the barrier to entry was first line manager, right? Being, being the manager of a team, always, you know, m most of the managers that I have, they were always traveling because they had reps in different territories. So they had to go be with them or, you know, help them along with deals, et cetera. Then I would just observe kind of the day-to-day -day lives of the people who were up in the, in the management chain. And there were some positives and there were some negatives. And for me, I just really enjoyed working with the customers every day and establishing those long lasting relationships, both, you know, from inception, from the prospecting and initial engagement stage, all the way through to having very long standing relationships. That was something that, that I really saw that I was good at and I really enjoyed. So I, I stayed. Did you stay in sales for the money or for the relationships then? It depends on what you ask me in a different year, every year. Well, no, I was just having a debate with somebody the other day about whether great salespeople are all money motivated. But the way you talk, you didn't, you don't talk about the deals that you do in the, and about how much commission it made you. You talk about, when we've spoken before, you've talked about the deals that you do and the transformational impact on customers' businesses. So the first time you do a really big deal and make a lot of money, it's all about the money. And then the second time or the third time, the money loses its luster and these other things really come to light. One thing that really, really hit me the second time I did a really large deal was the impact that that deal had. Not just so, so I'm in an enterprise space, right? I, I sell enterprise stuff to enterprise customers who use my software for really mission critical applications. And the impact that I saw from the second deal that we did was that it actually impacted the lives of their customers who are millions of people all over the world in a, in a really, really positive way. And that, that by far took the pole position in terms of what I found important or fulfilling in my life was, gee, I can have an, I, I'm not the only guy on the team to make this deal happen, but I am a leader of, of this team. This team made this deal happen. The deal put a new reality in place for the customer. And the customer was able to impact their millions of customers worldwide through our joint efforts. Uh -huh. So, so another thought occurs to me as you say that, which is that you're, you're although you're not a manager, you're you're still a leader of your virtual team. Some someone once told me this, and now I tell other people that other people this. I have no reports, so nobody reports to me, but I have a lot of people who work for me. And when it's time to do these big engagements, the team grows to 30, 40, 50 people globally. It's a big shift, right? Let, let me just say this, Dom, I hate kind of run rate sales. I hate it. I hate smiling and dialing. 
I hate tons of outreach uh, in terms of very low level kind of just get your foot in the door where there's there's nothing going. I just hate all that stuff. But I love the impactful relationship building with senior people on both sides of the table and talking about supremely important topics to the company. Well, it's interesting because I recently interviewed the author of The Machine, Justin Rolf Marsh. It's so interesting listening to you speak because the way you talk is the way I think about sales, but it's not the way I think most people think about sales. So his, he says, look, he mostly goes into an organization that might have 10 sellers, all doing the same job and all hating various bits of that. And, and typically what he would do is he'd do transformation and he'd, he'd end up with only one seller no longer doing smiling and dialing, no longer doing any customer service, no longer doing that, no longer doing their proposals, but actually selling that whole working with a client to find out how we can help them transform their business or the lives of their customers. And he said that he feels that that's a specialist skill. Whereas burdening people with admin and you've got mediocre people and you're giving them jobs they don't like doing. I find it fascinating hearing you from your side of the, your side of the, the fence say, I guess, more or less the same thing. Well, we've had previous conversations where you said something that resonates with how I like to work, which is when you have um, a seller of capacity, which could be an individual contributor, could be the CEO, whoever the seller of capacity is, unencumber them as much as you can to do the high value work, the high value tasks, the high value interactions, the, the, the customer interactions. And try just unencumber them from all the other stuff where, wherever possible, and it'll pay big dividends. I see exactly that when I'm talking to some of the smaller organizations that I might work with, where you know the CEO or the MD is really that seller of capacity. You know, the managing director of a business is going into the managing director of a customer or maybe the senior partner if it's a professional services organization, and they're making a promise that they can deliver for the client. And they're, you know, they're looking them in the eye and then they, 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 you know, we're having a conversation with them later and they're thinking about changing their model and hiring a salesperson to replace them in those interactions. And it just seems that that's just going to be incredibly difficult. You know, it's actually, there is a thing about somebody senior coming in and doing, doing those large deals. What do you think about that? I couldn't agree more. My, my signature strategy is to include my own management as early as possible in an interaction. My experience is that doing larger deals is, on the one hand, very few people know how to do it. And on the other hand, it's such a leapfrog in terms of benefit for two types of companies. The, the startup just wants revenue, right? Just give me a hockey stick of revenue so I can get my next round of funding or you know, I can prove to the market that you know, we've got, we got legs. And then to the mature company, they're looking for profit. So just getting the revenue number up, you you got to work the deal right so that you get the margin that's there. But the margin opportunities and the revenue opportunities are so amazing that I think that learning how to institutionalize, how to increase the size of deals is the next opportunity in enterprise sales. Right? There's been a lot of talk and there's been a lot of movement in technology to try to enable, especially SDRs inside people, how to, how to personalize their outreach, how to get to know customers very quickly, et cetera. And that's moved the needle somewhat. But if you can change a conversation from a $100,000 ARR conversation to a million dollar ARR conversation 
And that's just changing the way that you sell what you have. You're going to transform your revenue. You're going to transform your company. That's so interesting because both at uh, Rackspace and Pier 1 and IT Lab, to a lesser extent, you know, that it was those going from, I don't know, $99 to $50,000 a month at, at Rackspace and $249 a month to a million dollars a month at Pier 1 that just changed those, changed those businesses. And I've seen that with some of my own clients. You know, last year they were doing £10,000 a month. Now they're, you know, they're not happy unless the deals are £100,000 a month. Exactly that sort of 100000 to a million pounds of ARR. What do you think the anatomy of these deals is? How people listening to this going, if only I could do that in my business. What, what are the steps and what do you think people need to think about? Because we're not talking about new products. We're just talking about selling the things that you sell maybe bundled up slightly differently to a bigger customer? Within the company, I think where it starts is getting get, getting the team together to think through, uh, okay, I know my widget. I, I, I know what this, and I got I know the features and functions, et cetera, but what's the potential impact of my widget on the, the, the audience, right? Our audience being customers. And what far and away what most uh, companies do is they sell the widget. And what they really should be doing is firstly late being laser focused on what's the problem or the opportunity that the customer has, and then really laying that out to the customer and then saying, by the way, you know, I, I do have something that can help with that. And let me, let me just give you an example. A lot of people talk about value proposition. It's an overused term. It's relevant, but it's, it's quite overused. And they also talk about insights. And now what is an insight? Well, at, at, a, at a basic level, an insight is bringing um, a new discovery about a reality. For our purposes, it's about a business, right? So you could bring an insight and say, hey, did you know that if you just made this tweak somewhere in your business, you're gonna have a massive change, right? So a little bit of work is gonna be a, a big, big result in a way that you care about. So I coach reps and teams on how to do big deals. And one of the concepts that we talk about is there are different kinds of insights. You could have an insight that would really turn on a first line manager based on the scope of their world. You could have an insight that would be much more relevant to a VP because it, the, the scope of that insight isn't just for a team, but it's for like a whole business unit. Or you could have a C-level insight and a C-level insight is gonna impact the entire enterprise. So the trick is to discover and un unveil and reveal a C-level insight to the customer. Because your widget, you can say to a first line manager, here's how my widget's gonna help you. And they could say, okay, that's great. And that insight is gonna reveal a value of 100K or ARR. But you could sell that same widget and map it to a much, much bigger, problem or opportunity and have that conversation with a C-level person. And all of a sudden the value that your widget brings or contributes to is a million dollar ARR value proposition, not a hundred thousand. So you asked me, what are the, what's the anatomy? The, the first piece is getting, is mapping your, the story of your widget and its contribution to a much bigger problem. And well, and also it is then pitching that solution to that problem at the highest possible position in the customer yeah that's step two step one is understand how how the pitch is going to go step two is get the right person to give the pitch yeah 
I was just thinking about how easy is that to do? And you could probably get the organization to get its head around what the pitch might be. You know, we've had a $100,000 ARR impact for a client. Okay, what if they'd rolled it out everywhere? What if they'd used it as, you know, what if they'd used all the bells and whistles that we could offer them and da, 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 da. Okay, that could be a million dollars. And then it's, well, who's going to go, who's going to go and find the CEO, work out how to get in front of them. And then who's going to, and then they just, that's it. They just go, right, well, let's not bother because we just have got no, we've got no way, we've got no mechanism to do that. So have you got any, when you're coaching, coaching CEOs as, as big deal hunters or, or your t- the reps and teams, how do you solve the second problem? The model that we use is very much as basic human nature, right? Birds of a feather flock together. When you look at someone in society, we do a quick check and we try to assess and put people in boxes right away to categorize who we're dealing with. And we're either going to see someone as a peer, as a superior, or as a subordinate in terms of whatever rank or hierarchy we're dealing with. In the business world, it's pretty easy to see, okay, I'm I'm working with somebody who's on my level. I'm dealing with somebody who's above my level. I'm working with kind of somebody who's a little lower on the picking order than me. And and we make a comparison. If, If you... Dom got a call from a sales guy and you knew they were a sales guy. And then 10 minutes later, you get a call from the CEO, a UK based mid-market company. Both of them left you voicemails. Who are you going to call back? I'm only going to call the CEO back. Yeah, because you see yourself like them or you see in a comparison, she's the one I want to talk to, right? Yeah, well, you just, it's in your, you know, how much time have you got? Is it likely that the CEO has has a shortage of time and therefore this conversation might well be important to both of us? Whereas the sales rep is doing is smiling and dialing. I'm just on his list. I'm not important to him. He's not important to me. So all of a sudden, an initial touch by somebody who is a peer or sometimes a superior, right? That you could be a market expert. You could be a celebrity, right? You, 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 we use the concept of leverage to get the most recognition, brand recognition. You could call it brand recognition. And that could be your CEO. That could be an expert, whatever, to reach out to the highest level person possible at your audience or your target company or your prospect. And that, that's not, a, that's not surefire, but it increases the likelihood of a response. I mean, also, if you think about the CEO's, EA, she gets a call from the CEO of a company, as opposed to Bob, the sales rep. Her filter on the CEO's time just means Bob's going to struggle to get through, whereas CEO may well get through, or even if they don't get through, they might get the opportunity to book an appointment. That, and that's what they do. Um, admins are, are trained to, they have a filter and as soon as they see a similar role or title as they do, at least they'll pass it on and say, this guy wants to talk to you. Do you want to talk to them? With the sales folks, many times they don't even get to say, hey, do you want to talk to this sales rep? It's just, ah, sales rep bucket, which is the recycle bin. So, yeah, um, the, the anatomy of the deal, in, in my view, is first find the highest value, the highest value possible that your widget can offer. Go find the right person internally to make the pitch and then pitch as high as possible, as early as possible, because 
Uh, I, I make an analogy of most most sales reps are like mountain climbing, and we feel that we've got to take every step of the way, the long hike up the mountain. Why not instead? Why don't we just get out of the mountain hiking game and become a heliskier? If you're a heliskier, you just rent a helicopter, get to the top of that mountain in 10 minutes, and the rest of the time you're just skiing all the way down. And you avoid all of the pitfalls and the, you know, the blockers and the, and the small thinkers on the whole way up and you're, you just accelerate. I, I have a saying, larger deals get done faster with appropriate executive engagement. Yeah. Well, and the other thing that I, I thought about is that I often, when I'm talking to salespeople, I say, look, a no is nearly as good as a yes. Like who wants no, but it, what it means is you qualify them out and you don't put any more time in. That whole mountain climbing thing, you spend 12 months getting to the top only for the CEO to say no. Much better that you get in early and the CEO goes, not not this year or not never, and we move on. Because you're, you're talking about picking a very small number of high-value targets and then going, them, going after them in a systematic way as opposed to standing on a high street with a megaphone, hoping somebody walks past whilst you're yelling about your basket of goods. And in narrowing down that target list again, you know, getting a no early is good. There was a really great case in point. One of my students is a CEO of an early stage company in the UK. And we worked together both on, in terms of the pitch and worked on a deck that she was going to put in front of a very senior person. And then this early stage company had been acquired very early in their development by a much larger organization. So once she had the pitch ready, then she went to her own, her own CEO right, of the acquiring company and uh, engineered a meeting with one of her biggest prospects, which turns out to be one of the largest insurance companies in the world and got a meeting with the CEO. And it's all about leverage, right? The, the leverage of the message and then the leverage of the messenger put those two things together and amazing things can happen. So I've got to do a quick thing because I, I just occurred to me, so it might occur to other people who are listening. So at the beginning, when you introduced yourself, you said you work for Oracle. And then of course, you've started talking about the work that you do. So you're coaching CEOs and reps in your spare time at the moment, is that? After I put my kids to bed and on the weekends. And where are you based? I'm based in Sweden. I, I live right very near uh, Copenhagen, Denmark. Uh, so I'm right over the bridge in a small town called Bund, University Town. And how do you end up in Sweden? Yeah, love. It's not the taxes. <laughs> My wife's a, a physician and she can't practice medicine in the US, so I moved to Europe for her. Oh, very good. Very good. And so what are you teaching people on your course? Soup to nuts, end to end a selling process on how to sell larger deals. And it's called Mega Deal Secrets, but a mega deal can be whatever you define it to be, right? So in my history, it's been eight figures and, and close to nine. But, you know, to someone else, um, one of my students moved from doing 50K deals to 1.5 million. And that was his mega deal. So what we teach in the course is, is a shift in mindset, right? You know, how do you shift from trying to use a fishing pole to catch a fish this long? to doing that activity a completely different way with the desired outcome of hunting whale. You can't hunt a whale with a fishing pole. So we do a lot of mindset work on how to shift. And then we get into exactly the things we talked about, how to craft 
a value proposition that maps your widget to an extremely important problem or opportunity with a customer, how to institutionalize executives and sales reps working together such that the reps are doing all the legwork and they tee up the senior executives to come in because they got, you know, senior executives have day jobs too, right? So they come in for these key meetings or phone calls or conference calls and just accelerate the acceptance and the buy-in and the conversation around the topic that you brought to bear. And then thirdly, how to manage a much more complex sales cycle. Because most reps, even if they're field reps, it's the rep and the pre-sales person, right? And they go out and with that, you can go do 100,000 ARR, million ARR maybe. But if you want to get to the tens of millions or, or mega deal size for whatever your company is, you're going to get more folks involved. So you got to move from being an individual player on the pitch to being the coach with a couple other coaches, you know, with, with the different teams involved. And that's a whole different set of skills. And both management and individual sales reps need to learn how to manage the sales cycles differently when it comes to these more complex deals. Yes. And well, and I suppose qualify hard as well, because otherwise they're going to take, if, if it's not your normal process, suck in a load of resources. And what you don't want to do is suck those resources in, have people burn the midnight oil, and then you have one or two or three where just you get nowhere and the organization's going to go, look, you know, this mega deal stuff, it's a load of bollocks. Let's just go back to, let's just go back to our run rate thing. Let's go back to the thing that we're comfortable doing. Yeah. Well, I, and that's a, that's a very valid, almost objection to even attempting to do large deals. The objection is too risky. It's just too risky to put all that time and all those resources into even chasing this because the percentage chance of winning is so low, right? That's a, that's a fairly common objection to why even try. So, but I have a couple of thoughts on that. One is that it doesn't take that much more to increase the deal somewhat. Maybe, maybe you might not five or 10 exit, but you, with some smaller tweaks, you can increase your deal size significantly, right? Doubling, sometimes tripling with a few tweaks. Don't go after a whale, just go after a bloody big fish. There you go. And the other thing is, do go after a few mega deals, but even, you know, if you, if you go with the, 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 the indigenous tribes hunting whale, they had to fish too. They had to go hunt fish and seal to have meat in the boats while they're out there hunting the whales. So it's not like you're, I only hunt whale and nothing else. It's a percentage of your portfolio, let's say. Because I do small deals, I do medium-sized deals. I don't enjoy them as much, but it's part of the part of the gig. You need run rate business. You need that uh, recurring revenue, you know, that you know is just going to come in every quarter. But 35 percent of your time could absolutely be going to much higher value opportunities. Well, and you're going to be somewhat limited if you're a rep in an organization where there is a number of sellers, you might be limited by your access to your CEO. And so, you know, you might just have to say, how are we going to bring an opportunity a month to the table? What's your sense on close rate then as you go sort of small, medium, large? Do you see changes in close rate or is it that people go, the, the chance of this deal coming off are really low? Or if you, if you get your ducks in a row and you have a, a proposition... Can you keep your close rate at a reasonable level? 
That's a really good question. And I don't have a quantifiable answer, but I have a response. So in my own experience, it, it, it has become the kind of a thing that's kind of like, you know, in the, in, in the movie world, in the film industry, Star Wars kind of broke the mold in terms of the whole concept of sequels. Right before that, the only real successful sequel was James Bond's, all, all the all the James Bond movies. But from Star Wars forward, the the new opportunity in the film industry was doing these big franchise movies, Star Wars one, two, and three. Uh, you know, there's just so many of them. Lethal Weapon. It just goes on and on and on, and. Um, that's what mega deals have become in, in my experience. Once you do one, it not only is a big deal in itself, but it cements this relationship between the supplier and the customer such that that relationship just continues. So now the world is all about SaaS subscriptions, right? And the goal is to try to help people renew their agreements. We talk about how to build a franchise uh, movie business out of your territory. So that's not necessarily the initial close rate, but it certainly is about the repetition. Once you invest in a relationship to that extent, it becomes very, very sticky. And so it becomes not only do they renew, but they also tend to grow the engagement because of the level of service that they're being given, because it's worth it to your company to put in more resources to get that kind of margin. Okay. So what... Uh... I'm a CEO listening to this or I'm an MD listening to this in a mid, mid-sized business and I'm thinking, my sales team don't get me involved in any deals. What are the top three things that they should go and do today or tomorrow to start building this muscle in their organization? So the first thing is something that many already do, but then it stops there, which is just be vocal. You know, what, what many executives will say is to go to the sales guys and they'll say, just get me involved early. It's okay, you know, and it's kind of an open door policy, but that's where it stops. That's not enough. I would say that the, the senior people, you know, the, especially for the late stage startups, you know, the, the companies that are trying to mature quickly, I would have the CEO be a part of the, if you call them QBRs, right? Quarterly business reviews is typically when the sales team gets together and reviews their best opportunities, either for the quarter or for the year. Have the CEO involved in that in some way. Um, and secondly, I would encourage reps to have some kind of ongoing dialogue or have something like a executive sponsorship program. So where you jointly identify some real potential, it doesn't mean that the sales cycle is mature and they're about to sign. It means that you've identified some really good potential early on. That's when you start having the rep do a bunch of legwork to set up the executive to come in. And that gets the customer's attention very quickly that you're willing to invest in your resources there. So top three things, number one, have an open door policy. Number two, be a part of the sales review process. And number three, have some kind of a way of having, you can call it way like an executive sponsorship capability so that you start, you get in the habit of mapping mapping an executive to a high, a high possibility opportunity. I would add on a fourth for people, which is I might be sitting down with a CEO and an executive team of sort of six, six, seven, eight executives. And certainly the sales director and the customer services director will speak to a customer every week. And what I say to those executives is, look, everybody in this 
everybody in the room, everyone around the table should be speaking to a customer every week. And I think that's where, when the executive team are discussing their value proposition, you know, marketing, HR, everybody can make a contribution if they understand the core customer and the, those customers' problems and the industry that they're in and the competitors that they're up against. And then you can make, you can have the organization have sales at the core of its culture rather than just the purview of the sales director. Absolutely. Any way that the sales team can, because it's really, I see it as the sales team's responsibility to knit together the relationships and the, un, the common understanding between buyers and sellers, right? The, the customers and, and the vendors. And the executives have day jobs, all of them, but they need to leave a, all of the head of HR, the CFO, everybody should be customer facing because they all have value to deliver to the customers. I mean, I've, I've worked at companies where our CFO talks with other CFOs about best, best practices in being a CFO. And it's not about uh, selling product, right? It's about adding value immediately. And all, all executives in any company should be ready and prepared to interface with and deliver value to customers. And so if, uh, if people are thinking, you know, you were talking about the late stage startup in the UK that you worked with the CEO and you helped to craft a uh, value proposition and a pitch deck, is that the type of work, you know, if anybody, if CEO MD is listening, that's the type of thing, if they're stuck with that, that's the thing you can help them with? Sure, absolutely. I, I love that. It just gives me energy to help somebody put it together and get in front of a customer. Jamal, that's brilliant. Um, knowing what you know now, is there a piece of knowledge that you would like to take back to a to a time in the past? Um, yeah, it's the amazing power of human nature, right? It goes back to everything that I learned. I learned in kindergarten. You know, human nature continues to rule at every level, even at the most senior levels of executives. And when you follow, I, I'm big in emotional intelligence. When you follow uh, a well-trained gut, you're probably right. And if, you know, treat others as you want to be treated, you can dive so deep into that, into that concept. And it can take you so far in the business world. Is there a thing in the past where you think, if only I'd known that then, that that would, maybe I got a different outcome? Definitely. Um, I limited myself in terms of the types of people that I would reach out to in sales by saying that, oh, she wouldn't, you know, she, she, she's a manager. She wouldn't have time for me. Oh, she's a, he's a. CEO, oh, oh, they're too big and they're too busy. And I don't have anything that would really be a value to them. So I'm going to go to the lowest common denominator possible within the, within the customer side and see if I can get somebody to spend a little bit of time with me and I'll start that hike up the mountain that way. And the truth is, that's, that's not true, right? We, 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 we limit our own thoughts about how important we are, how well we can deliver a message or the value of the thing that we're trying to put in front of them so much so that it, it limits our thinking. And that's another reason why doing larger deals is what I think is the biggest opportunity in enterprise sales right now, because so few people are even attempting it. So few people are reaching for reaching very high with also having done the pre-work of having a really well-crafted message that it's, it's this, it's, it's a blue ocean. If you know, blue ocean strategy. Yeah. Well, you know, what's funny. Cause I said to somebody the other day, I don't think my phone ever rings. 
And I was talking to, so for a couple of days, I asked sort of all the senior people that I spoke to, I said, how, how often does your phone ring? People looked at me and went, never rings. Nobody ever rings people anymore. So people, it makes them feel comfortable if they sort of say, well, cold calling doesn't work or calling, they can find some stats that prove that it doesn't work or they can say to themselves, it would be really annoying if I was that CEO and, some, and I was the sales rep and I rang them. People are just looking for comfort. And in fact, my experience is, as you were saying, you know, if you've got a really well-crafted proposition and you call me, then why would I not want to spend time with you? What books have you read along the way that you think, and it doesn't have to be sales books particularly, but what books have you read along the way that you have had an impact on, on you and your career? So there's a litany of sales books um, from the challenger sale to flip the script to um, selling to the C-suite. That was a really good one. There's three that people should definitely read around sales. Yeah, but one that is applicable to sales, but it's more, it's applicable to any real human interaction is called the power of moments. The power of moments is basically the idea that um, memorability is actually measurable and human beings in any, in any interaction, human beings basically remember two parts of it. The most impactful part, positive or negative, pleasurable or painful, and the end. Yeah, Daniel Kahneman's peak end rule. Yeah, we can engineer moments to impact people, to get our message out or through, or and we can use it to connect. And that's absolutely applicable to sales, but it's also applicable to any human interaction, right? Employee interactions, right? If you want your employees to feel heard and, and a part of the mission and, and that they buy into it, you can engineer moments as a part of their daily or weekly or monthly or quarterly experience that will just have a massive impact. And they have all these really great examples about how Southwest Airlines in the U.S. wins by, you know, they have the, uh, when, when the, the, the flight attendants give the announcements about what's happening, you know, with the seatbelts and all stuff, they make a lot of jokes and they sing songs and had a massive has a massive measurable business impact. Um, there's a hotel in uh, LA, and they're not the best hotel, but they have the best reviews on TripAdvisor. And one of the reasons is they they engineer these moments like uh, when you're at the pool at the hotel, there's a phone on the wall, and when you pick up that phone, it's called the popsicle the popsicle hotline. Right. And when you pick up the phone, they say popsicle hotline. What kind of popsicle would you like? And then you order a popsicle. They bring it out on a silver tray for free. <laughs> and it cost them, what, 50 cents, you know, next to nothing. But engineering moments like that completely change. In this case, it was a customer, right? Completely change the customer experience. And they tie all these emotions to the experience. And they tie that to the, the, the hotel in this case. Yeah. And so then they've got someone... Then they've got someone to talk about, and they do. And they do. Fantastic. Jamal, it's been absolutely brilliant to talk to you today. Thank you very much indeed for giving me your time. Oh, thank you too, Dom. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As a token of your appreciation, it would be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review. Those reviews really help other people find this podcast. 
For all information relating to this episode, you can go to dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. And there you'll find some fantastic show notes, additional reading and links relating to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter. The simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and I'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that I've read on all things relating to scaling up high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. For social, you can find me on Twitter, Dom Monkhouse, and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse, although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me, share your questions and comments, and, and perhaps even recommend a guest for a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>